Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. What's white and blue and in a tree? A refrigerator wearing a jean jacket. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke, really more of a strange fact, kind yeah. of, from Tracy Ellis Ross, star of the sitcom Blackish. That'll break the ice. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, Corin Tucker of rock band Slater Kinney is here to spin a party playlist. Also coming up, Titus Welliver, star of the new web series Bosch, contemplates the pros and cons of neo noir. And comedian and author Maz Dubrani tells us how to befriend neighbors. You take a broomstick and you hit that ceiling. You go, hey, hey, hey! Hey, yos! Presto. Instant friends. Fun. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Walmart announced today it will increase starting pay to $9 an hour beginning in April and $10 an hour by this time next year. After weeks of relentless fighting, a key Ukrainian rail hub fell to Russian-backed separatists Wednesday. The Lunar New Year starts today. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Lizzie O'Leary. She is the host of Marketplace Weekend, public radio business show on the weekend. Interestingly, Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about this week? Well, I'm actually going to be carrying um, some tiny sea creatures with me uh, at all parties that I go to. Will they be dead, or are you going to have water in your pockets? Well, I will have water in my pockets, as I, oh. as I usually do. I'll, I'll be attaching them to things because the little fibers on their tongues are the strongest biological material known to man. Really? Oh, my goodness. Says who? Says the Royal Society in England. It was on their journal. So it's it's basically these tiny little teeth on the very strong tongue of a limpet. And a it, limpet? A limpet. A limpet lives in a tide pool. You've seen them. They look like sort of conical, almost scallops. They're like serrated and they All cling right, to yeah. rocks. Oh, yeah. And they excavate rock and stuff on rocks. They eat rocks for breakfast? Yeah, they eat rocks for breakfast, <laughs> That's man. Tough. This stuff is really strong. So the strongest thing in the world is called a limpet? Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's I guess crazy. they had to be strong because they're probably getting bullied in the <laughs> for ocean. For being called a limpet, right? <laughs> they fight, though, man. They fight. Yeah? Yeah. I watched a video. But wait, how strong are we talking? here, these limpet tongue teeth. So think about it this way. It can be compared to a string of spaghetti holding up 3,000 pounds of sugar. So they should make bike helmets out of limpet tongue teeth. One of the commercial applications could be bike helmets, but also airplanes, boats, Mm -hmm. stuff you need to be really strong, stronger than Kevlar. Oh my God. So these are teeth on their tongues. Teeth on their tongues. Mm. All right. So it must be really difficult getting limpet children to take care of their teeth at this point, right? Because what can destroy them? (laughs) Nothing. Just Cracker Jacks can't destroy them? I laugh at your plaque. They have no incentive to floss. (laughs) (laughs) Poor little guys. Go to bed. Whatever, Mom. All right, Lizzie O'Leary, thank you so much for the small talk. Anytime. Small but strong talk. And now time for cocktails. Yet again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our lightly malty history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Around this time, back in 1961, Ivan Ivanovich blasted off for outer space. Here's Michelle Philippi to tell us about him, or rather it. Before Yuri Gagarin piloted the first manned mission into space, the Soviet Union launched the first mannequined mission. See, Soviet engineers wanted to be sure Yuri's historic trip wouldn't, you know, kill him. So for the test flights, a state-of-the-art dummy stood in for Yuri. His creators named him Ivan Ivanovich, the Russian equivalent of John Doe. 
Yvonne looked like the real deal. He wore the same pressure suit Yuri would. He had lifelike skin, eyebrows, and eyelashes. In fact, engineers worried he might be a little too realistic. Yvonne would ultimately be ejected from the rocket, parachuting to Earth. What if a peasant found him and mistook him for an actual dead cosmonaut? Or maybe an alien? So they stuck a big sign on his face. It read Maquette, Russian for dummy. Yvonne was less lifelike on his second ride into space. Because to test the rocket's communications, he was rigged with a sound system that blasted choir music. Also, just to confuse any Westerners picking up the broadcast via radio, the dummy periodically babbled a recorded recipe for borscht. Still, Yvonne caused at least one moment of confusion. After test flight two, he and the rocket landed near a rural town. Depending whose story you believe, the villagers either raced to help what they thought was an injured pilot or warily surrounded the body, convinced they had captured a Western spy. Yvonne made it unscathed through all his missions, paving the way for Gagarin's flight a few weeks later. But while Yuri was hailed as a hero, Yvonne went into storage. He didn't get his due till the 90s, when the Ross Perot Foundation bought him for close to 200 grand and put him on display at the Smithsonian. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it, on the line is Peter Mitchell. He owns the restaurant Under the Volcano, which is in Houston, Texas, home of the Center for Human Spaceflight Training and lots of other uh, NASA operations. Peter, what cocktail did this story of the mannequin inspire you to create? I made a drink called the Ivan Splash, as in Splash Down. All right. Ivan, as in Ivanovich. Right. So, Peter, tell me what's in your cocktail. Well, it has an ounce and three quarters of Stolichnaya vodka. Of course, a little Russian vodka. Go ahead. Uh, an ounce and a half of fresh-squeezed lemon juice. Okay. An ounce of simple syrup. Shake that with ice vigorously. Just like Ivan was probably shaking vigorously as he was returning to the atmosphere. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> we shake it and we strain it into a 16-ounce tulip glass that's filled with ice. And we top it with a uh, Belgian beer that's called uh, Mannequin Oh, interesting. So the mannequin is that famous statue in Brussels, right, of the little boy who is relieving himself, if I recall. That's right, yes. <laughs> and is that just a pun, I guess, the, the mannequin, the mannequin? Is that what inspires that embellishment? Yeah, well, we're always kind of trying to come up with interesting uh, beer cocktails, and yeah, I figured with the mannequin that would be apropos. All right. By the way, your place is located in Houston. Do people from the NASA community, you know, any astronauts stop by? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's it's all kinds of NASA people in Houston. So, yeah, we have NASA people coming in all the time. Do they have, like, a bigger capacity for drink? I'm just wondering if somehow the zero-gravity training kind of helps them or hurts them when it comes to putting away some cocktails. <laughs> Well, they come in all shapes and sizes, I suppose is the way to put it. You know, they tend to be sort of brainiacs, so I, I guess they keep it together better than most. All right, so what you're saying is they're not dummies. That's, that's right. Peter Mitchell, owner of the Houston restaurant Under the Volcano, and they'll be serving the Ivan Splash this weekend. Nice. Just the thing if you're an astronaut looking to calm your nerves before liftoff or something. Yes. Or for you earthbound non-Houstonites, check out our website where the recipe for that drink awaits you. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, had a drink. 
Now this party needs some music. And for that, we turn to Corin Tucker. She, Carrie Brownstein, and Janet Weiss comprised the indie rock band Slater Kinney. Their riotous sound and feminist politics made them a key band of the 90s. Their album Dig Me Out made Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums ever. After a decade hiatus, they've got a new LP called No Cities to Love. Here's Corin to DJ your party. Hey, this is Corin from Slater Kinney. Let me just tell you that when Slater Kinney is in the room, the party gets started. Janet will take over the turntable. Any of us could do it, but Janet's flawless. As soon as she gets that happening, we're all on the dance floor and the party is started. So this isn't going to be quite as good as Janet's DJ session, but this is my dinner party soundtrack. I got my batches and cookies. 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 My first track is by Lizzo, the incredible hip-hop artist from Minneapolis, and the song is Batches and Cookies. Remember that gooey gooey you took and said ooey ooey, I need two or two ooey at least for my baby boo Total party starter. It's kind of food-themed, but it kind of breaks the ice. You know, for me, dinner party, it's just, it has the word party in it. It should be up. I just think that she has a really fun sense of wordplay. She's got a great energy, and uh, now she's doing our whole U.S. tour with us. So the second track I would pick is by Courtney Barnett. And it's History Eraser. I got drunk and fell asleep atop the sheets, but luckily I left the heater on. The song to me is just an incredibly strong narrative of her being, I don't know, drunk at a party and making out with someone. But the way she phrases everything is so singular, it's very compelling. I think there's something about, I changed all the letters around on the page so they would spell out your name. I heard the song and I was like, what is this? And then, you know, my husband, Lance Bangs, was like, oh yeah, Courtney Barnett. You know, I have the CD, of course. And I and I was like, what? what's her story? He's like, well, I don't really know. Which is shocking because my husband is always an encyclopedia of information about the new artist. So that's why I'd play her at the dinner party being like, hey, who knows Courtney, you know? In Portland, there is kind of a good possibility that somebody would be like, oh yeah, well, Courtney, I know her, she does this. So as the party goes along and uh, the ice is broken, I think maybe we'll switch to a track that kind of unifies the party, something that everyone knows. This is David Bowie, Changes. I was thinking, you know, maybe we need to, maybe the food is done. Maybe we're going to move to a different room, maybe. So I think that, you know, having the song Changes would actually provide a good segue into a change, change of scene for the party. Still don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets and He had his incredible gift as a songwriter to empathize with the protesters and the kids. He was always telling their story, you know, rebel, rebel, changes, this profound storyteller and, and narrator. Changes! Don't tell them to grow up out of 
was going to pick a Slater Kinney track to play at a dinner party, which, by the way, I would never do. I would probably pick No Cities to Love, the title track from our new record, because I think you could actually sit down to it and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be awful. I did actually turn to Carrie one time when we were hanging out and said, you know, I wonder if we're ever going to play together again. My husband Lance was in the room. Fred Armisen was also in the room. They kind of freaked out and were like, whoa, this has got to happen. So there was a series of conversations after that. Should we do a show? Should we do a couple of shows? And it was like, no, not good enough until we got to the point where we're like, we have to write a whole new record and reinvent the band, period. Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, they're on tour now. And by the way, Corin's husband, Lance Bangs, knows the music scene so well because he makes rock videos and documentaries. And you can hear our chat with him at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, time for a break. But coming up, actor Titus Welliver talks about playing Hieronymus Bosch. Mm. Lots of cool names. Stick around. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comic Maz Jabrani explains the glory of spoons. But first, mm. it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Titus Welliver. He played the man in black in the hit TV series Lost. Mm. He was also a regular on Deadwood and Sons of Anarchy. And you can see him now starring in the Amazon series Bosch, which is based on the best-selling crime novels of Michael Connolly. Titus plays Harry Bosch, a hard-boiled L.A. homicide detective trying to solve a murder while standing trial for killing a man himself. Here's a clip in which Bosch insists on taking the murder case after a child skeleton is found in the Hollywood Hills. We don't even know what we have up there. It could be decades old. Well, exactly, which is why on Monday this goes to cold case. No, it stays with me. I caught it. I keep it. It's a hobby case, Lieutenant. We excavate the site tomorrow and then we evaluate. I could be finished with this court bull before we even get forensics back. Damn it! I need the work, Lieutenant. This is the work I do. When we spoke, I asked Titus if playing a genre character made him extra cautious about avoiding cliches. Definitely. I mean, you know, one definitely approaches it to stay as far away from those traps that, you know, have been so firmly established. And look, I mean, it's sort of like uh, rock and roll. You know, it's all derivative. You've got a few (laughs) chords... But they go a long way, and so it's just sort of how do you reinvent the wheel to a certain degree. You know, unlike a lot of shows, many shows are shot in Canada or Michigan. This was actually shot in Los Angeles. Connolly asked for that in his negotiations with Amazon. Was it unusual to work where you live? A a little bit, yes, I have to say. But really a breath of fresh air, and there really isn't any other way that they could have done it. I mean, L.A. is, you know, as much a character as Harry Bosch is in in this show. Yeah, it's gorgeously shot. It has this neo-noir quality. Uh, There's one scene where you are at a bar with this beautiful young recruit who becomes a love interest, and you're having martinis, and you ask her, you know, why did you get into police work? Because of the glamour? And you're saying it sarcastically. But when you're watching it, you're like, this does look pretty glamorous. It's the middle of the afternoon, and these two 
fairly attractive people are having a cocktail. Well, it's also so analogous, though, to Hollywood in itself, right? I mean, you know, we think of it as it's Hollywood Boulevard, the boulevard of broken dreams. You know, it's the facade of of, of beauty and, be, and what lurks behind that is some pretty dark stuff. Well, so, yeah, so it, your character is a bit of an antihero and... In TV, we've been kind of living in the age of the antihero, you know, these conflicted, badly behaving, but partly sympathetic guys. In light of Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and, and those sorts of shows, was there pressure to play Bosch differently at all? Did you take that into account? Not at all. I, I thought, I mean, to soften him up, to distill him in some way would be to completely undermine, you know, the, the musculature of the character that was created by Connolly. And so... That's one of the things that I like about Harry Bosch. He's not a guy who necessarily has an inherent desire to be liked. And so yeah. stepping out of the, the norms of you know societal politeness makes him, I think, a more accessible and, and realistic person. Yeah. I think people also stay with him because of his – he has this moral compass despite the fact that he sometimes takes liberties with the rules and makes adjustment to proper police procedures along the way. He breaks from departmental policy – but it's certainly not uh, him taking the law into his own hands. You don't see him, you know, beating confessions out of out of perpetrators. Sure. It's not, he's not, it's dirty, not a dirty Harry. Harry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's not. And he's not named after Dirty Harry. But I do want to talk about who he's named after, Hieronymus Bosch, the Dutch painter. Yes, exactly. And did Michael Connolly ever tell you why he chose that name for this character? Well, he became very, very uh, taken by the images uh, painted by Bosch, and I think that had a, a great deal to do with it because, you know, there's such a depiction of, of darkness and light and the underworld in, in Bosch's paintings, surreal as they are. Um, and I, I would be remiss if I did mention that you are named after the son of a painter, right? Was Rembrandt's son was named Titus? Yes, yet another Dutch painter. So there's almost destiny in this casting decision. So it would seem, so it would seem, <laughs> I know. It's a, it's, it's a hell of a name to hang on a kid, um, but as an adult, it's, it's not so bad, but, uh, you know, I could... It's pretty cool. Yeah, the derivations of that name uh, on the playground are, are, oh, yeah. have, were horrific. Yes, as a kid, being named Titus might be difficult. Yeah, not, uh, <laughs> not, not easy. You yourself are the son of a famous painter, Neil Welliver. Aside from the Rembrandt connection, did he give you any other reason for selecting the name Titus? Well, he certainly liked Rembrandt, but he, he really just liked the name, he and my mother mm. both. I'm glad they proceeded with that rather than Oliver Welliver. <laughs> Those two don't go well together. Titus is better. So another question I had while watching the show was, how did Harry get such a nice house? Right? I mean, he has sweeping views of downtown LA. There's a wraparound porch. It's all glass. Um, it's pretty fancy for an LA police detective. Were you envious of his digs? Well, yeah, who wouldn't be? I, you know, I clocked <laughs> that also from the film Heat. That was Amy Brenneman's house in the film Heat. Oh. But that's a, that's a big question a lot of people have asked. What about that house? And, <laughs> you know, the, Harry speaks to that in saying that he consulted on a film, you know, based right. loosely on one of his cases, and that's, the, that's where he got the money to buy the house. Yeah, it's kind of a meta moment. I, I, I think that's one of the qualities of noir, that even though it's this dark underbelly of, of cities, the, main, the protagonist, you know, you're listening to jazz, you're having a scotch, you have a deck, a beautiful woman comes by. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of appealing, even though it's <laughs> yeah, a dark right. world. That's right. You have to take the <laughs> perks when you live in the world of neo-noir. <laughs> That's right. A, a, a good, you know, 12-year-old malt and some Thelonious Monk goes a long way. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have a standard request we make of each of our guests on the show, and it is tell us something we don't know 
And this can either be a personal fact about you or an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Well, it's, this is something that relates directly to Bosch because it's been brought up in social media. And that is that, like Harry Bosch, I too am left-handed. Um, ah. But I do a lot of things with my right hand, one of them being uh, firing a weapon. And a couple people said, why isn't he using his left hand? So you're but actually I, authentically left-handed like the character, yet you happen to be a lefty who uses your right hand for shooting. Yes, Yes. And, of course, all the Bosch maniacs are calling you on that. I know. So I guess that means <laughs> that in between, um, you know, God willing and Amazon, we get picked up for a second season. That I try to train to shoot the weapon with my left hand. Or you can just hold up your left hand like a stop sign and say, enough. This is an adaptation of a book. We're taking some liberties. Right, I could do that. Or I could just <laughs> totally break the fourth wall, look directly into the lens and say, I shoot with my right hand, but I write with my left hand. <laughs> Maybe that's too arch. Titus Welliver, you can binge watch the first season of his show Bosch on Amazon anytime you want. Convenient. And Rico Titus, like his dad and his character's namesake, is also an accomplished painter. Oh, nice. Yeah, he, he does mostly natural landscapes, which is different than, you know, the noir stuff you might of think. Of course. Although you can make it noir by just painting in a severed limb somewhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's like the opposite of a happy little clown. <laughs> to eavesdrop. Actress Tracy Ellis Ross starred on the hit sitcom Girlfriends. These days, she plays the mom on ABC's acclaimed comedy Blackish. Today, we overhear a tale involving her mom, who happens to be Diana Ross. Hi, my name is Tracy Ellis Ross, and I'm going to tell a story about a very poignant and terrifying moment in my journey of self-acceptance and how all parents worry that they might have ruined their child. Shortly after I left college and worked in New York for a little bit, I moved out to Los Angeles with the idea of becoming an actress. I was obsessed with Carol Burnett. I loved sketch comedy, and I, well, I considered myself a pretty good storyteller. And my brothers, who are 15 and 16 years younger than me, were very entertained by my storytelling. And so I had sort of honed my skill with certain characters with my brothers. It was time for the holidays, so I thought that it would be a great idea for me to share laughter as a Christmas gift. I would, with my Hi8 video camera, put a face to some of these voices that I had been doing for my brothers in the storytelling. All these different characters had the task of saying happy holidays. So there was an older Jewish woman who was like, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah. There was a French woman who uh, was from saint Bar, and she was, uh, happy holidays. Uh, there's two keys we give, so it's a one, two. And then one of the main characters that emerged that night was a character by the name of Madame Iver. She uh, evolved into an alcoholic life coach. And she really does want everybody to know that they are somebody. You are somebody. And I was like, this is my world, and I'm sharing myself, and this is me, this is me, and this is so funny. And I don't think it dawned on me that it was at all crazy or kind of came across like schizophrenic. 
I made this videotape and I used my emergency credit card of my mother's to go to an editor and edit it. <laughs> I don't think that's what she meant by emergency. This VHS tape, I had copied 52 times, sent it out to 52 people, and then when Christmas came around, I went home and my cousins and my aunts and uncles, we were all at my mom's house, and we all were gonna gather around the TV and watch my holiday VHS tape. And my mother <laughs> came downstairs in the center of all of it, and she said, can I speak to you? followed her all the way upstairs, and when your mother sits you on the side of her bed and you are knee to knee, it is not gonna go well. She paused for way too long of an amount of time, looked me in the eye, and finally said, how many people did you send this videotape to? And can we get it back? And I was like, I don't think we can get it back. But it's funny, no? And she just had this face of, I obviously have failed as a mother. In hindsight, it wasn't in any way a squashing of my creativity because my mom is not that. I think that it was more not wanting her child to be misunderstood. And honestly, my mom now loves the holiday tape and she references it on a regular basis as one of those moments that, you know, I found the courage to be myself. I will say, Madame Iver is so excited to know about Tracy Ellis Ross and all that she's done in her journey. I want women to know that they all have a song, and Tracy sings her song so loudly and without apology. Tracy Ellis Ross, she stars on ABC's sitcom Blackish. She still performs today as Madame Iver, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, Happy New Year. Chinese New Year, of course. That's right. Chinese New Year was this week, a big deal here in Southern California where there's a huge Chinese community, which also means some of the best Chinese food outside China is here. And for the last year or so, the Sichuan style of Chinese food has been getting a lot of attention around these parts. Kind of bold, spicy flavors. You know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Sure. But there's a wave of restaurants that prove Sichuan is also a little more subtle and refined than Americans may think. One such place is called Sichuan Impression, and that's where I met with Clarissa Wei. She has written about Chinese food for CNN, Village Voice, many more. Outside the restaurant, I first asked why Cantonese-style Chinese cooking was for a long time the standard in America. Um, Definitely immigration patterns. The first people who came over here for the railroads, they were from Taishan, which is an area in rural Guangdong, the Cantonese region. So that's why there were a lot of Cantonese-style food. Um, But now there is an influx of mainland Chinese people coming from all over China. You think that's why Sichuan keeps getting better and more popular, because more from that area coming here? Yeah, and Sichuan is also one of the more popular schools of Chinese cooking. Um, the capital of Sichuan, which is Chengdu, they were the only um, city in China to have been awarded a UNESCO site award for gastronomy, and that's given out by the United Nations. Because it's so awesome? Yeah, because it's so awesome. Um, and because there's a lot of tradition, we'll see when we eat the food, a lot of cool things like tea smoking. They tea smoke 
duck or they'd tea smoke ribs. And the chef here, um, if you talk to him, he'll say Sichuan cooking is all about the feel. You know, you can't write it in a recipe. It's a very ingrained tradition. Um, I think the Sichuan dish that people are most familiar with is probably Kung Pao chicken. Is that a real thing in authentic Sichuan cuisine is that some Americanization? Yeah, so there's a dish called Gong Bao Ji Ding, which is basically Kung Pao chicken, and it tastes completely different from what you're probably used to. I feel like a lot of the Americanized Chinese restaurants, um, they put a lot of cornstarch, so it's gloppy, and they think people really like sugar, so they add a lot of sugar. Sichuan cooking is not like that. It's not sweet. It's mostly focusing on garlic and spiciness. The spiciness is, you know, when I've read about Sichuan cooking, seems to come to the fore. And there is a special Sichuan pepper that has kind of special properties. Tell us about it. Yeah, so that's the hujiao. Um, it's a dried peppercorn. And that's actually not a pepper. It's in the um, citrus family. So it's more closely related to a lemon than a pepper. The flavor is called ma la, and that means numbing. So if you get a big enough whiff of it, it will numb your tongue. And they have two different types of peppercorns here. They have a red peppercorn and they have a green peppercorn. And the green is much more acidic and um, lemony, if you will. How is it different the way one's t- tongue is numbed in this cuisine as opposed to, say, if I take a big bite of super hot Tabasco or something? The sensation is if you drink cold water, your entire mouth will kind of buzz a little bit. After you eat this food? After you eat this. But Sichuan impression, they do it very subtly, so it's not like, oh, I dare you to go eat a Sichuan impression. There are places like this where you can do that, you know, force your friend to eat a platter of chicken with the peppercorn. But here is a lot more refined. Um, Though they have French fries sprinkled with peppercorn, um, that's pretty intense. Let's go check this out. Yay. All right, and our food has arrived, at least some of it. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the soup. The soup is called um, Le San Chao Jiao Tang. And this was actually a more modern dish. Um, and the story is that there was a herbal medicine doctor he decided to cobble together this kind of herbal broth. And so many people lined up in front of his place to eat it that they were sitting cross-legged in front of the restaurant, which is why it's called cross-legged beef soup. And if you look at the soup, it's really just herbal, and there's like daikon in it, um, and tripe, and beef. And then right next to it is the spices, so you can customize your spice level. And then there's a big pile of kidney, which has been sort of chopped up, and that's got the green peppercorn on it? Yeah. And it's going to not burn my face off. Let me try, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it won't burn your face off. It's really subtle. Okay, I'm going to go for it. It is surprisingly delicate. It's almost got a, a tofu quality to it. Yeah, it kind of tastes like tofu. Um, if you wait a little bit, you will taste that citrusy thing on your tongue, at the tip of your tongue. You're right. I was just going to say that as you were saying that. It's amazing. The aftertaste is its kind of tingly, but in a really pleasant way, like almost menthol. Yeah, so you know you're at a good Sichuan restaurant when the flavors are subtle and they don't overwhelm you at first bite. They will creep up on you. But this is... It's kind of incredible, the afterburn on this pepper. It is just lasting and lasting on my tongue. It's not painful or anything, but it just doesn't want to go away. Yeah, and the more cold stuff you drink, the more intense it will get. So (laughs) try drinking that, see what happens. All right, I'm going to take a drink of plum juice. 
That kind of kicked it up a notch, but the plum juice actually is deliciously smoky. It's made from smoked plum, so it's actually counterbalancing the citrusiness. Yeah, which is why molecular gastronomy trends, like I roll my eyes at it, because Chinese food already has all of these cool properties. When you eat a peppercorn, then you'll feel numbing, and then you have this smoky plum, which does another thing to your mouth. So it's like a science experiment. Without any dry nitrogen or anything. Yeah. And Brendan, during that interview, I also ate some of Sichuan Impression's unbelievable ribs. Mm. They are smoked for two days over imported Chinese green tea leaves. Oh, for green real. tea. So they're healthy, <laughs> right? We can pretend. Antioxidants. It's a, it's a happy world. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, comedian Maz Jabrani tells us how to speak in polite company. Shut up! Shut up! Lesson one, be direct. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a tune from the great pop staples. And coming up, Oscar-nominated costume designer Colleen Atwood. But first, it's high time we learn some manners. Yeah. Yeah. So let's begin our weekly etiquette lesson. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is comedian Maz Jabrani. He is Iranian-American, which is relevant because he's perhaps best known as a member of the Access of Evil comedy group. That's a group of four Middle Eastern comedians who've toured together. But Maz is also his own person, Hmm. and that Mm -hmm. person has made lots of TV appearances on shows like The Colbert Report and Late Night with Craig Ferguson. He's a regular panelist on the public radio quiz show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I've never heard of that one. You heard (laughs) of that one, Rico? Sounds weird to me. It is weird. And his new book is called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I Played One on TV, Memoirs of a Middle Eastern Funny Man. Maz, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. We're excited to have you here. And we should say it's kind of clear, obviously, from the title, but you don't always play yourself. No. Uh, you've acted in <laughs> film and TV, including The West Wing, is that right? Yes, I did. A, I, I played a Saudi ambassador in, uh, in The West Wing. Of course, you ah. have a diplomatic air about you. I do. And you, you spend a lot of time in your book, actually, talking about the kind of roles that you get as a Persian-American. Can you run us through sure. a few of these? Well, you know what happens is, this, this was, a lot of this was early on in my career. So early on in, the, in your career, I always say, like, when people find out you're of Middle Eastern descent, the kind of parts that you get you tend to die a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so I did, a, I did a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I knew I was going to die. If you're Middle Eastern in a Chuck Norris movie, you're never going like to be a sidekick. Yeah. Then yeah. it'd be Chuck and Hassan saving the world, right? You know, Chuck, you get those guys. I get these guys. See you back at the base. Yalla, yalla. That's not going to happen. So I did that. I did a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I played an Afghan terrorist who wanted to blow up um, a building. Has it gotten any better since then, do you think? No, I think what happened was, so after that, I said, no more terrorist parts. I told my agents, no more terrorist parts. And then one more came up for the TV show 24, where Mm -hmm. they go, it's a terrorist. I said, no, thank you. And then they go, but he changes his mind halfway through the mission. I go, ah, the ambivalent Mm. terrorist. Mm -hmm. I'd I'd like to try this. So I played that. And then after that, I said, no more. And what's interesting is it's it's not really that much better in that there's still a lot of parts like that. I just turned down the auditions now. So you act, but you're also a stand-up comedian, and you talk a lot about being a Persian-American. You've also toured the Middle East, toured Iran. What, if anything, do they find funny over there that we don't? For the most part, they were laughing at a lot of the similar stuff. What's crazy is with the internet now, 
the rest of the world knows so much about America, and America knows a lot less about the rest of the world. <laughs> it's true, right? So you could literally you could go to Saudi Arabia and do a joke about Lindsay Lohan, and they'd be like, "Oh, that Lindsay, always in the rehab." You know, they get it. It's crazy. But is there? I mean, is there something that would not translate here? I guess that they would laugh. Well, at? let me tell you something. That, that this is where you start walking a fine line because I, I was recently in Saudi Arabia. And um, I was doing a show, and, and they've just started doing public shows. Hmm. Before, it would be a uh, promoter who would do kind of like a private show, and you would end up doing the show at like the uh, Venezuelan embassy, oh, okay. or you would do it at a compound where there's a lot of expats living, but then the Saudis who are Western educated would come and watch. Uh, I see. And the crowds would be mixed. Now that they're, they're doing it in public, you have like the left half of the crowd are all a bunch of dudes uh-huh. and the wow. right half are like families so hmm. you do a joke and you like whatever you do like a, a a fart joke and the left half the dudes are just dying of laughter yeah and the right is kind of looking at you like what is this like, all that's about? not funny yeah. that's not funny then you do like a joke about your kids <laughs> and the right half is laughing and the left half has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> All right. Well, Maz, we have etiquette questions submitted by both families and single men. Yes. Uh, are you ready to tell our audience how to behave? Yes, and I will move to different sides of the microphone as I do it. It's going to be a good workout. Uh, here's something from Amir in Austin, Texas. And Amir writes, why do we Persians insist on eating everything with a spoon? Well, Amir, that's a good question, and the answer is very simple, because we want to get more bang for your buck. How so? Because you take, listen, you, t- you you bring me a Japanese fellow with his chopsticks. Okay. Uh-huh. Then you bring me a, a white Anglo gentleman with his fork. Uh-huh. And now you bring me that Persian with the spoon. Okay. And you put that rice in front of these three, and you see <laughs> who finishes first and gets to their nap. <laughs> well, it depends on what kind of rice, though, right? If it's sticky Japanese rice, then perhaps the chopstick is That's is just efficacious. cheating. Yeah. <laughs> That's just cheating. Sticky, sticky aside, so the nap is the key motivator there, Listen, you're saying, for gentlemen, the Persian? Yeah, and ultimately it is. It's about getting to the nap, because in Iran, they actually take um, siestas. Oh, I'm so jealous. All right, so, Amir, there's your answer. The spoon is just the straightest line between rice and sleep. <laughs> That's the official reason. Sleep it up. Our next question comes from Graham in Brooklyn, New York. Graham writes, I live on the second floor of a three-story apartment building. My new upstairs neighbor wakes up every day at 7 a.m. I know this because they jump out of bed and proceed to stomp around for the next 30 minutes. Am I within my rights to ask them to tread more lightly? I know how this goes. Graham, Graham, Graham. Um, You're in Brooklyn, New York. You're in New York. (laughs) Do you understand this? Have you seen Raging Bull? You need to rent Raging Bull and see how Robert De Niro and Raging Bull, Jake LaMotta, deals with... The neighbors that make noise. Oh. Can you remind us? Well, he just opens the window and he starts cussing them out and like, "Shut up! Yeah. Shut up!" <laughs> you know, those are those are words you can use, Graham. You're in Brooklyn. I thought you were. But it's say, so you... cold in Brooklyn right now. If you open the window, you might freeze like a gargoyle. Brendan, you don't need to open the window. You take a broom. You take a broomstick oh, okay. and you hit that ceiling. You go, "Hey, hey, hey! Hey, yous! Yous up there!" But what if your neighbor is Jake Lamada? And you're just oh, a public radio point. person. You do this, but you keep that door locked. <laughs> All right, here's something from Maya in Nashville, Tennessee. Maya writes, I am a half Indian, half white, Jewish South African. My coworkers and friends will sometimes try to correct me about my own culture and cultural experiences. Things like, yeah, but real Indians, X, Y, or Z. 
How should I respond without seeming uptight? Maya, it's very simple. You got to come back. You got to kind of, you got to, you're right. You got to walk a tightrope here, right? So you got to come back with like, listen, half of me agrees with you. (laughs) The other half, not so much. (laughs) It's wild though. Like, so basically Maya's getting in trouble for not confirming stereotypes, it sounds like. Oh yeah, that's interesting. No, no, you're supposed to like spicy food, Maya. Or at least half of you. That's probably where this happened. It was probably a spicy uh, uh, curry sauce. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, I'm not gonna. And then her friends were like, But what? Real Indians eat <laughs> spicy curry sauce all the time. Is that what a real Indian sounds like? That's, that's how, yeah. That's the, that's what people in Nashville, Tennessee yeah, sound like. The Nashville, Tennessee, they talk like this in Nashville, Tennessee all the time. Real Indians. <laughs> and then the Indians in Nashville, Tennessee talk like this. No, we don't. We don't always eat spicy. Food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm very good with accents. That's really Yeah, you're excellent. Thank you. Sprightening. Can you do a Saudi prince? Hi, I'm a Saudi prince. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Mazda Bunny, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Of course, anytime. Maz Jabrani, his new book is called I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV, Memoirs of a Middle Eastern Funny Man. And folks, if you have an etiquette dilemma, share it with us, and we'll solicit the advice of someone who is not a behavior expert, but can play one on the radio. Yes. Submit your query to dinnerpartydownload.org. Or via our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at Brendan's desk. It's 213-621-3460. You've almost certainly admired Colleen Atwood's movie work, even if you don't know her name. Over the last three decades, she's designed costumes for more than 50 films, most notably many of Tim Burton's over-the-top, mind-blowing visions, including Edward Scissorhands and Alice in Wonderland. She's earned 11 Oscar nominations. She's won three Oscars. And this weekend, she's up for a fourth for her work on the Stephen Sondheim musical adaptation, Into the Woods. And Colleen, welcome. Thank you. Let's go back to the start of your career, which Wikipedia tells me was back in 1984 with the drama Firstborn. Well, interestingly enough, when I did Big Eyes this year also, the budget I had for Big Eyes was the same as I had for Firstborn. And it (laughs) cracked me up because I've always remembered that number. And... I called the producer, who's still a friend of mine from Firstborn, and I said, guess what my budget is on my latest film? <laughs> so indie films like Big Guys basically have the budgets of a 1984 studio film. Yeah, exactly. All right, so the budget numbers haven't changed much since you started, but I wonder in what ways the costuming industry has changed. I know, for instance, visual effects have changed massively since 1984. Well, technology has changed a lot, the sort of collaboration with the visual effects teams. It's quite a bit different than it used to be. In Into the Woods, we didn't have a lot of visual effects that were costume-related other than Meryl's flying cape and things like that. But in general, I think it's definitely impacted. A lot of times I've made the costumes and they've just scanned the costume and plugged it in. So you design the costumes and then they digitally put them on the actors after the film is shot? Yeah, in, in some cases, if For instance, when I did the first Alice in Wonderland, we had a character that worked the whole time in a blue suit. The actual actor. The actor did. But I made the costume for them to scan because the actor was actually exaggerated in height and stuff. But at least if they had the real costume, they could stretch it out and use it in that way that made it more real. Let's talk about this, actually, kind of real versus heightened reality in costuming. You won an Oscar for the movie Chicago, an adaptation of a musical to the screen. Same thing with Into the Woods. 
there's immediately a kind of artifice to musicals, right, by virtue of people bursting in a song every few minutes. How do you work differently costuming a musical as opposed to a more straightforward drama or a comedy? Well, I think on a movie like Chicago, where there's huge amount of athleticism in the dancing, you have to design costumes that people can actually do 25 takes of something <laughs> and it doesn't fly into pieces. Oh, yeah. But you also want to make it re- believable that it's real clothes. They just happen to be dancing in them. Mm. So it's kind of a fine line depending on the piece. Like I also did Sweeney Todd years ago, another Sondheim musical, yep. which is really set in an environment, in a, you know, a Victorian environment. And, and the clothes were really realistic costumes yeah. for that film. Based on an era. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Into the Woods was a combination of a lot of different eras combined. So it was the trickier thing from a design point of view for me to get a bead on. You also costumed very realistic movies like Silence of the Lambs. And, you know, I've noticed that movies that seem to win costuming Oscars are the ones with spectacular period costumes or fantastical costumes. But I imagine it's actually far harder to make a costume that has to sort of not catch your eye. Is that true, would you say? I think that's... No, I don't think that's true. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's that theories floating around out there. I think it's equally difficult. The important thing for both is that you aren't distracted by it and it's telling the story. In Silence of the Lambs, the costumes were totally realistic, although they were all dipped in kind of a green dye to kind of tweak the color of them. All of the costumes? Almost all the costumes in the movie, yeah, kind of have a tinge of green to them. It sets a a mood for it. It's a very grayed out green, but it dirties it up in a way that added a bleakness to the film. It kind of helped sell it a lot, I think. Was there maybe a time in looking back on some of your costumes where you're like, oh, that was too much. That scene now becomes about my costume and not about the movie. When I first see the movie, I have those feelings, you know, it's like, oh, why did I do that? Oh, it's like that. Why did I use that color? I really question myself a lot the first few times I, I look at the movie cut to five years later, I can look at it and go, oh, that was that's a fun movie. I really like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not thinking about it. Instead of, oh, that stitch was bursting. Yeah, it's like, why didn't they have that button closed on the cost? <laughs> you know, just like minutia. Um, what is your favorite era to design costumes for? I noticed that you worked on the Hunter Thompson movie, The Rum Diary, which is set in the 50s and 60s, and I actually remember really envying Johnny Depp's outfits in that movie. I love that era. I think it's really, I'm kind of a minimalist in on a personal note in my life, you know, I love... That is ironic. Cl- I know. <laughs> well, when you look at all that stuff every day, you have to go home to a, like for me, understanding what negative space is, is really important. <laughs> and I think that era really is great for that. The 50s and 60s? Yeah, so simple and, and clean. But I love kind of the patina of the 20s a lot in, in America, mm. especially. It fascinates me from a design point of view because so much modern design was going on, but at the same time, we were just stepping out of the Edwardian period. So it's quite a complicated period, but really, really interesting to me. The most difficult costume you ever designed? Well, I just did a um, the second Alice in Wonderland that hasn't come out yet, but I had a really complicated costume on Sasha Baron Cohen, who's a very kind of physical actor. So I was trying to do this huge scale costume on him, but to have it still work in a way with his physical language, we really feel like we did get it right, but I haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be going through that period where you're like, oh, that's Sasha going, Baron Cohen costume. I'll be going, ooh, I don't know if that was good. <laughs> and finally, 
Is there more pressure on you than on others to wear something amazing to the Oscars? Well, there's probably not as much pressure on me as the Best Actress uh, nominees, but, you know, in the technical categories, for sure. And the hitch and the giddy-up is that my workroom is so busy that I mention the Oscar dress and they kind of glare at me. <laughs> so a lot of times I end up just buying one and kind of remodeling it. You have an entire crew of people that make dresses all year long and they're just like, I'm not making you another damn dress. <laughs> they're just like, really? You want us to do that now? <laughs> Costume designer Colleen Atwood. This Sunday, she finds out if she wins an Academy Award for Into the Woods. And folks, if you plan on watching the Oscars, invite us along via Twitter, won't you? Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. We'll be quipping and commenting through the night. And that's the next time you're going to hear from us because that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Aww. Jackson Musker produces the show. Our digital assistant is Brittany Martin. Our interns are Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales. Daniel Ramirez and Garrett Lang provided engineering assistance this week. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Pop Staples was the patriarch of the great singing group The Staple Singers. And a year before his death in 1999, he and his daughter Mavis recorded an album called Don't Lose This. This week, Anti Records re-released it with new production and guitar by Jeff Tweedy. Here's a track called Somebody Was Watching. Bon Appetit. I've been shot up and shook down. I've been turned away and turned around. With nobody to go on my own in this mean old world alone. Many, many nights I cried. Somebody was on my side. Down in my soul. for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for... What? The... Are you hearing this next door? Yeah. Hey, you! Shut up! We're recording in here! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! God, finally. Those guys from Wait Wait Don't Tell Me are jerks. <laughs>